But I entitled today's message, As the Future Catches You, for we're going to talk about a coming king. And I want to just begin with one simple concept and then we'll dive into it. Here's the question for us. Why do we have such a hard time giving up control, giving up power? Why do we have such a hard time letting someone else be the boss of us? Why do we have a hard time, especially in the arena of our heart and the reins of our lives, handing it over to God? What is our problem? Because really, it's got to boil down to some specific reason. And it's either that you think that you care about your stuff more than God cares about it. Maybe that's your concern. Or maybe you literally believe in the concept that you're better at it. Okay, well, let me ask you this. If you are great at managing your life and it's going perfect for you, let's imagine that, right? Which in my life, I I always screw it up. So we're not going to use me as an analogy. In your life, you still have the reins of your life. You still are sitting on the throne of your life. You're still in charge and everything's going stellar. If you remain the king of your life, you better know how to do the next one good too. You may be excellent at running this one, but there is what's called an afterlife. And you better know what you're doing there as well. Because if you're the king, you better save yourself. Because the king's got to be the one in charge. If Jesus isn't calling the shots right now, he's not likely going to call him for the future. And he's the only one that's been there and is coming back. Here's the thing. We need to realize that there's no such thing as I'm just my own person. Nobody's in charge of me. I'm just kind of going through life. That's baloney. As a matter of fact, to make that point very sharp, I made a fill in the blank there on your sheet. And it's this. There's no such thing as an empty throne. There is no such thing as an empty throne. If you're not sitting there, someone's sitting there. And if it's not God... It's somebody else. At all times, someone is ordering your priorities. Someone is telling you what you value and what you don't value. At all times, someone's calling the shots. Who is it in your life? See, what's so weird is we play this game every day where we give God parts of our day. We give God parts of our life. But that's not a king. A king rules overall. Total all the time and I wonder by looking at my life looking literally at how I act and how I think and what I do Is Jesus my king? I claim him to be my king. I say it so the majority seems to look like it But there's still stuff that is not submitted to the Lord and I don't know why I am so resistant But if we are to be saved If we are to be taken home, if there is to be joy for us after this life, we got to have the right guy running the show and it cannot be us. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 21 in the Bible's handed to you? It's page 697. That should make it a little easier, a little faster. Page 697. And we're going to be flying through this because we have a short amount of time today. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 is where we're going to start. Page 697 in the Bible's handed to you. And as you know, I normally, uh, I'm teaching through Matthew, but we realize that there are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's four books that are very similar in nature. They talk about Jesus' life. 
Normally, there's three of them that tell the same story from different perspectives, but John kind of does his own thing. In this case, we're going to open up chapter 21 with a story that all four of them tell. So what I'm going to do to give you the full understanding is combine all four of their perspectives and read through the story as if all four of them were teaching us. So you can kind of listen wherever I deviate from what you're reading. That means I've gone on to either Mark, Luke, or John, and I'll come back to it. All right? We all ready to go? Let's pray for the word and we can get started. Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes to understand your word that it may not be merely academics, but it would be life transformational, that we would be different because we came here and heard and read this. That, Lord, it's not just the little ones that need to be dedicated. May we dedicate our lives to you now as we submit under your authority and we ask you, teach us what is true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It begins with one line that begs a history story. It starts like this. Mark says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Okay, real quick setup. Remember, Jesus has spent has spends all of his uh, 33 years of living in one tiny area of the world. It's called the Middle East, right? We would look at it as the Israel region. But not only just that, Israel is kind of a north and a south kind of thing. In the north, there was the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Jesus spent all of his time. He only periodically took little trips down to the south, where the capital city of Jerusalem, the holy city, was. So he has done all of his ministry up towards the north. He's now finishing a three-year-long earthly ministry. We are now launching into the last week of his life. As we begin this story, it begins Passion Week. It starts with a triumphal entry and it ends with him dying on the cross and raising again out of a tomb. But these are the last seven days that we get to see Jesus here on earth. He is now going from the north down to the south, and they don't know about him as much as the north does. But boy, his name gets around. And for the Jews, they had special festivals every year that they got really pumped up about, very excited about. One of those major festivals was called Passover. You guys have probably heard about this idea of Passover. It's an Old Testament story when God broke them out of their bondage to Egypt in a rather miraculous fashion. If you haven't read that, you might want to go back and read that. That's where kind of Moses gets on the map. All right. However, every year they would come back and they would draw all the people in the region, all the male Jews and their families back into the holy city to have one huge festival over the idea of Passover. That's the feast that this story is talking about. You say, well, Lance, how many people are we talking about? Well, not only was it mandated, required for all Jews within a 20 mile radius to come back to the city of Jerusalem. But we had visitors and pilgrims from everywhere. You say, well, how many? Well, I read one commentary and they did uh, one Roman governor 30 years after this event around, we would say, 8070. A.D. 65, wrote down, literally began to chronicle some stuff about people that were visiting during this time of the year. Guess what he found out? If you total up all the numbers, 2.5 million people swarm into Jerusalem at this time of the year. Okay, that's a lot of people. So this is jammed. 
this is everybody's crowded. Everybody's excited about this. And you know when you don't see everybody, maybe for a year, everybody's got the buzz, you know, talking about what's going on in your life, what's going on in your life. Well, there's a major buzz about this miracle guy. Oh my gosh, his ministry kicked up in this last year. I'm up from the north. You never believe this guy. He's casting out demons and he's healing people. And he's speaking against the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And they're in conflict and all these guys want to kill him. And this is the major story on everybody's lips. They can't wait to wonder if this guy's going to show up. And then the word gets out. He's coming. He's going to come to the festival. What are we going to do? Oh, this is going to be a massive battle. This is going to be incredible. Because now he's coming to the holy city and going head to head with the Jewish establishment. I wonder what's going to happen. So everybody's on edge. Everybody's ready to find out what's going to happen. That's where our story begins. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, which on their way is actually Bethany on the way in. And just as you enter it, you're going to find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, which no one has ever ridden. Untie them and bring them to me here. Okay. Let's stop. That's weird. (laughs) Now, I would imagine the disciples are used to weird stuff with Jesus. He always has odd things for them to do. Okay. It was kind of like, hey, what are we going to do today? I don't know. Let's feed 5,000 people with a couple loaves. All right. It was just a weird life. So they probably were taking it in stride. They're kind of like, all right, agenda. Go get donkey and her baby donkey. Okay, great. Fantastic. What else do you want? You want a carton of milk on the way? What do you want? Right? So they're going to go through and he says, I want you to go in there. Two of the disciples. I want you to go grab a donkey and her colt, which no one has ever ridden. You're like, that was an awful lot of description for a donkey. You could have just said, get that brown one over there. Whatever. Why do you got to tell me it's no one ever ridden it? Why is that important? Okay. Because who's going to ride on it? Jesus, why does it have to be a donkey that no one else has ridden on? Okay, I don't know the full depth of the answer. I can just tell you this. Not you stuff is really important. And here's why. The Ark of the Covenant. Y'all remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford. Praise the Lord. Okay. (laughs) This fancy box thing where God's presence was always had to be carried on poles. But when they did, when they were allowed to put it on a vehicle to carry it, meaning put it on a wagon, it had to be one that had never been used. Then, when there was a special red heifer, a red cow that was used for a certain sacrifice, it had to be one that was never used before. And then when there was special set-aside instruments, they couldn't be used for anything but God's stuff. When it was God's stuff, it was God's stuff. Nobody else uses it. That's called holy. The word holy means set aside or set apart. So this was a holy donkey in the sense that nobody else has touched it. Nobody has used it. It's my donkey. God said, I want you to go get my donkey. I'm going to ride in on it. Now, Matthew is the only one that tells us that Jesus asked for both the donkey and its mom. All the rest of them just focus on the little donkey. And you go, I don't get it. Why are you bringing them both? Jesus is only going to ride one. Why does he need the other one? Best guess by scholars, baby donkey doesn't want to do what mom donkey doesn't do. So how do you get baby donkey motivated? Move mom out and little donkey will follow. So it's probable that it's a very practical reason that when you get mom and you walk her out, little donkey just follows behind and he's in on it. Otherwise, he's freaked out. It's kind of the same thing with baby dedications, as you notice. 
So he tells them to go out there and find that. He said, if anyone says to you, if anyone asks, why are you doing this? Tell them that the Lord needs them and he'll send them back right away. So he's saying, listen, I'm just borrowing your donkey. I'm not ripping it off. I'll give it back to you. And he's going to send it back. He said, um, the, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Now he's quoting Zechariah 9, 9, which is hundreds of years before this. Here was the quote. Here was the prophecy. Say to the daughter of Zion, which is Jerusalem, do not be afraid. See, your king comes to you, speaking to the Jews, gentle and riding on a what? On a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So hundreds of years before this, a prophecy was made that when the Messiah arrives, he'll come riding into the holy city on what? A baby donkey. So Jesus It's tracking right in line with the prophecy. The disciples who were sent ahead went and found a colt outside in the street, tied in a doorway, just as Jesus had told them. Hey, shocker. That's pretty miraculous, right? As they untied it, the owners standing there asked them, what are you doing untying that colt? In other words, why are you ripping off my donkey? (laughs) I don't understand. I'm standing right here. Why would you just take my donkey? What did they say? They replied, the Lord needs it, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Why did they let them go? Because what town were they likely in? Bethany. Who lives in Bethany? Jesus' three best friends outside of his disciples. Mary, Martha, and the guy that raised from the dead, Lazarus. So it's pretty well known that Jesus comes and hangs out with his pals every once in a while. They know who he is. Oh, Jesus needs it? Oh, that's fine. Go ahead. Take it. There wasn't a problem. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them. And Jesus sat on the colt. Why did they put their cloaks on him? Was that, was that magical? Was that mysterious? No, it's called a saddle. <laughs> okay. So you either sit on the donkey by itself or you throw your coat over it and it's a little bit more squishy. That was it. Very practical. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this, Mark says. Only after Jesus was glorified, meaning raised from the dead, back up to the right hand of the Father, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So in other words, we're about to read this incredible story of an incoming king and the disciples don't get it. They're going to be clueless the whole time. They're like, we just kind of got a donkey and he rode it. I don't really understand. What's the point? All of a sudden he ascends back up to the father and they look back at the scriptures and they're like, oh my gosh, we just brought in the king. Whoa, that whole thing about him riding in and the donkey that was tied to Zechariah and Oh my gosh, I got to be a part of that, right? Then what? As he went along, a very large crowd went out to meet him and they spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and fields and spread them out on the road. Okay, why is everybody throwing stuff on the road? It's an honor thing. What was the first thing it says? They spread their what? Their cloaks on the road. That's to throw their jackets down. You guys maybe have heard some of the kind of fairy tale ideas where the gentleman would put his coat down over a puddle so the lady could walk across. Same concept. It's a concept of honor saying, I want to make sure that you are not bothered even by the dirt. Well, this is an even more subservient manner because they're throwing their coats down, but Jesus isn't walking. The donkey's walking on it. So they're saying, you are so high and exalted in our minds, we don't even want your donkey to walk on dirt. They're throwing their cloaks down. Where did they get that idea? 
because that seems rather random. How does everybody all of a sudden just go, oh, my gosh, i got to take off my jacket? I mean, that only happens in musicals, right? This never really happens in real life. So where did everybody get this idea? Okay, well, in the Old Testament, there was a man by the name of Jehu. Jehu was going to be announced as the next king of Israel, and in an act of honor, what did everybody do? They all threw their cloaks down on the street. So when a king walks in, they had attached the two in their minds, which is when a king shows up, you throw your jacket on the ground. So it was already historical precedence. Then they did what? They cut down a bunch of palm branches. That's when you hear about the whole thing where they would wave them and say Hosanna and throw them down. Where'd they get that idea? 200 years prior to this, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, a horrible, nasty character, wanted to destroy the Jews and wanted to desecrate everything they hold holy. So what did he do? If you really want to make a Jew mad, go attack his temple. This guy storms through, causes a huge problem, challenges the Jews, fights them in a battle, breaks through, gets into their temple, and kills a pig on the holy altar. How do Jews feel about pigs? That's called not kosher, right? Absolute profaning, defiling, kills a pig right on the altar to defile everything. Well, that makes the Jews a little bit tense. The Maccabean revolt hits. Simon Maccabeus rises up, and in a huge battle, they battle against Antiochus's men. They beat him through, and in a victory march, coming up to come back and cleanse the temple, as he's riding in as the victor, what do you think the people did? They threw down palm branches. So it was already historical precedence. When a victor's coming to clean things up, what do you do? You throw down palm branches. What's the next activity Jesus is going to do after he rides into town? Cleanse the temple. Well, that's weird. Isn't that what Simon Maccabeus did? Shocker. We move on. It says this. Whoa, I got my... My notes on order, I was like, what is that? When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. Why? For all the miracles they had seen. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. That's a messianic title. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the king of Israel. Hosanna in the highest, they shouted. Those are some big words. There's one particular word I want to unpack for you right now. What does Hosanna mean? We sing it even sometimes in our songs, right? Anybody know what it means? Or are we just singing a bunch of weird Hebrew words? We have no idea what we're talking about, right? I don't know. It was in the song. Jeremy told us to sing it. Let's sing it. Okay, here's the real deal. At the time, it had a street use And the street use was basically hail or welcome mighty one. That's really what Hosanna kind of means. And that's why we sing it. But that's not what the word means. The word actually means save me now. In other words, I'm in a desperate situation. You are my savior. I'm crying out to you. Save me from where I'm at in my desperate situation. Please save me now is what Hosanna means. Do they know that? Do they realize that they are all saying we are in such spiritual bankruptcy that our Savior has now ridden into our holy city? Oh, God, save us now. Is that what they thought? I don't know. You know what it means when you say Hosanna in the highest? It means those of you that are in the highest, which were the angels, will you shout it for me so God can hear my cry? 
Will you shout Hosanna for me? I need it to be shouted from the highest place so that there's no way God will not know I'm in desperate need. There you go. So whenever you hear those words said, that's what it means. Here he comes. Some of the Pharisees, you guys remember who the Pharisees were? That was a religious establishment at the time that Jesus went head to head with. They were the smug, self-righteous guys that hated on everybody else and they thought they were amazing. Remember those guys? All right, Jesus doesn't like them either. Here we go. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, do you understand what they're doing? They're worshiping you. They think you're God. Tell them to be quiet. Unless you think you're God. Is that what you're doing? Is this blasphemy? What was Jesus' response? I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In other words, oh, the king's here. Someone's going to shout his entrance. We can either have them do it, or I can all of a sudden make all of creation scream it out. What do you want? One's going to freak you out. I think they're doing a fine job. Let's leave them alone. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. You have to understand Jesus' heart for the Jewish people is immense. Jesus is a Jew. Those are his precious, precious people. To this day, they are special in his sight. We are just lucky to be a part of the family as Gentiles. Jesus cried. He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would, what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. In other words, if you only knew who was riding in, you would receive me as your king. Do you understand this is the exact date that Daniel predicted over 500 years before of when the Messiah would ride into the holy city? Everything is timed just perfectly. The days will come, Jesus said to Jerusalem, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's called a prophecy. When did that get fulfilled? The Romans sacked Jerusalem in AD 70, just 35 years later. How'd they do it? They besieged it. They surrounded it and crushed them. Just as Jesus said. Was he being serious? Oh yeah, very serious. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they said, Who is this guy? The crowds answered, Oh, that's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. In other words, he got off the donkey looked into the temple, said, I'll come here tomorrow, went back and took the guys home. The next morning on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area. That's the main general outer courtyard where everybody could go. Because the way the temple was designed is you had the outer place where everyone could go. Then there was the courtyard of the women. Then you could go in where only the males could go. And that's where you could do all the ritual cleansing and everything. Then you had to go into the holy place. Then you would go into the holy of holies only once a year. And only one man could do that. So it kind of went out in these succeeding circles. Jesus is in the outside widest area where everybody is all over the place. Visitors, Gentiles, Jews, everybody's in here. And they're all getting ready for this feast. And they're all trying to change their money and get ready their animal sacrifices. And everybody's hyped up. 
Jesus walks right into the middle of that and causes quite a stir. It says this. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. Now, he did that at the beginning of his ministry, and they didn't like him back then. They certainly don't like him now. It says what? He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Why is that important? How many people are there? At least two million. When two million people show up in the city and you're selling stuff, what's your biggest day of the year? That day? What happens when some guy stops your business? How do you feel about that? I don't think anybody's happy. Not only that, he gets in, and this is pretty much the biggest rage you're going to see Jesus actively do physically. He runs in and starts throwing tables over, shouting, and chasing everybody out. Okay, this guy's gone ballistic. What is he throwing over? The tables of the money changers. What's a money changer? Every Jewish male had to pay a temple tax, but you can't pay it in your currency of your home place. You have to pay it in the right currency, a certain type of money. So you had to exchange your money to get the proper temple money in order to pay it. That would have been fine if they didn't completely extort everyone in the process. They were charging extreme fees just to change money over. They were taking advantage of people in God's house. No, you don't extort people. No, you do not rip people off. Then he threw over the tables of those selling doves. Why? Because doves were a common animal that was used for sacrificial purposes. Problem is, they had animal examiners. You'd go, hey, I'm just going to bring my bird from home, right? Grab your little parakeet and try to take him in, right? They had animal examiners that would look over it with a fine-tooth comb and go, this one's got a spot. Nope. Because it had to be perfect, unblemished. And they said, but we have one on sale right here, okay? And they would have all these doves lined up for huge prices. They were gouging people in the house of God. Oh, Jesus is not going to stand for that. You are going to get in the way of the worship of God for finance reasons? You're going to extort your friends? You're going to extort the people of God? Not on my watch. He comes, starts throwing stuff over, chases everybody out, shuts down all commerce. Whoa, Jesus is going off on everybody, right? Well, I don't think they were very happy. It says this, as he taught them, he said, it is written. And he quotes three different verses out of Isaiah and Jeremiah. He said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. Then the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Something that we mistake is we believe in some ways that Jesus rides in on a donkey, runs into the temple, thrashes it, and then bails out. That's not true. He kicked everybody out and set up shop. He said, the Messiah is in town. What did I promise you the Messiah would do when he showed up? Heal you. Come here. Are you hurting? That's what church is for. Come here, all of you. And he set up shop and began to heal the people right in the temple area. It says, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. What do you mean? Kids aren't supposed to be in the temple area. What kids are these? 
let's believe probably the boys that were 12 years old that were becoming men, they began to sing Hosanna to the Son of David. Where'd they learn that from? Their parents. What are your kids learning from you? Is that what they're shouting at recess? Is there any good stuff about Jesus? Or are they learning that new word they just learned from Dad when he hit his hand? Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Why, have you never read Psalm 8 too? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Early in the morning the next day as they were leaving Bethany, as he was on his way back to the city, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf by the road, he went up to it to find out if it had any fruit on it, but found nothing on it except leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it immediately. The tree withered, but they didn't see it. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How the fig tree withered so quickly, they asked themselves. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, let's stop. Why is Jesus so angry at vegetation? Are we all? It's this great war on figs. You're like, I, I don't. First, you're mad at the money changers. Then you got a bitterness against figs. I don't understand your problem. Um, real simple. When prophets are going to make a point, they usually do something dramatic as kind of a visual. That's all this is. Jesus has nothing wrong with figs. He's walking through and he looks out and he sees a fig tree in leaf. Now, you guys don't get it. Well, let me explain it to you. Our trees, our fruit trees, work the opposite way. The way it works in our area is all our trees produce leaves, they hold their leaves, and then periodically they produce fruit. With a fig tree, it's the opposite. Fig trees produce figs, then they produce leaves. Or they produce them at the same time, simultaneously. So in other words, there's no such thing as a fig tree that's only leaves and no fruit unless it's diseased. Something's wrong with it. But anytime you see a fig tree with leaves on it, you should automatically assume what? It has fruit. So now Jesus is about to make a story. Hey, guys, look at that. I'm starving. Look at that. There's a big fig tree in leaf. Boy, it looks fancy. I can't wait to get to that tree because it's going to have tons of fruit. Walks right up to it. What? There's no fruit here. Okay, he's telling the story. Curses the fig tree and it shrivels up. Why is that a cool story? Historically, the fig tree stands for two things. The nation of Israel. And number two, the blessing hand of God. Why is that important? What did he just say? So Israel, I come to your city. You put on a big show, huh? Always say you're the people of God. Oh, we're into God. We love God. God is awesome. You better come to our temple. We can talk to God there. It's going to be amazing because we got all these Torah stuff and these writings. It's all about God. You want to learn about God? We got the corner market on God. Come hang out with us. We'll talk about God. Have we mentioned God lately? You put on a big show. You got an awful lot of leaves. I walked into your city and what did I find? Nothing. There's no room for me. It's all a show. There's no fruit here. You know what? You're done. <laughs> Shuts it down. Broke it open to who? The Gentiles. He said this. 
as Jesus. Well, let me let me back up. He said, I tell you the truth, have faith in God. If you have faith and do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will happen, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Let me stop. Has that ever been taken out of context? Yeah, it makes creepy late night TV. Are we all clear? This whole health, wealth, prosperity kind of concept. You're only in your wheelchair because you don't have enough faith to be healed. Bogus. That is not what our Bible says. Well, it says it right there. It says that if you believe anything, you're going to get it. Oh, so you're going to take one passage and make that the full counsel of God on that issue? I can make the Bible say anything. You read it in its full context. You read it in its counsel all the way across. What does the Bible say about prayer? It says a lot about prayer. When Paul asked for the thorn in the flesh to be removed from him, he didn't get it, did he? Nope, he received the big N-O. Did Paul have faith? When Jesus in the garden asked if there was another way to do it other than the cross, what did he receive? Nope. If the Paul, the apostle, and Jesus received no, you need to be ready to hear no. Because God is still God. If prayer got you what you wanted just because you could believe real hard, that kind of makes God a genie, doesn't it? Just rub your little bottle, have enough faith. Now who's God? You. And I'm not okay with that. Moves on. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, let me ask you one question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John the Baptist's baptism, where did it come from? Was it heaven or from men? So they discussed it among themselves. He said, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the people, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know. Jesus said, then neither am I going to tell you about what an authority I do these things. Bye-bye. And then he told two parables. What do you think? There's a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he said, I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. And the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, yes, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. John came to, sh- to you to show you the way of the righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you still didn't repent and believe him. Now how angry are they? They spent all their lives making fun of who? Tax collectors and prostitutes. And he said, oh, by the way, who's that ahead of you in line? Oh, that's right. All the people you don't like. Listen to another parable, he said. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey for a long time. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard. At harvest time, 
He sent a servant to the tenants to give some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants struck these men on the head, treated them shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they stoned. He had one left to send. The son whom he loved. He sent him last of all. What shall I do? I'll send my only son whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what's he going to do with these tenants? They're like, ooh, 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 I know. He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. He'll come and kill those tenants, they replied. And he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him their share of the crop at the harvest time. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and he said, have you never read in scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the important stone, the capstone. For the Lord has done this and it is marvelous to our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They looked for a way to arrest him immediately, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So they left him and went away. Here's my closing thought. Did you hear what he said about the stone? Who's the stone that the builders rejected? Jesus. In other words, they're carving out and they go, oh, I don't like this one. This one doesn't look like what I want. And they threw it on the side. That stone ends up becoming the very center stone of the whole building. He said, those who fall on this rock, on Jesus, will be what? Broken. But the ones on whom the rock has to fall will be crushed, ground into powder and blown away. Let me tell you this. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Either you're going to want to say that or that's going to be shockingly new to you. If you fall on the rock of Jesus, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to get broken. There's no way to come to Jesus on your own terms. You come to Jesus on His terms. There's no such thing as an empty throne. Someone's got to get off the seat. Is it you? Please give Jesus back his chair. And everything will be different. But if you continue to say, you know what? I'm my own man. I'm independent. I'm autonomous. I don't need God. Okay. Just make sure you can handle the next life too. Because someday that rock is coming down. This is not a threat. This is merely the way it's going to go down. My prayer for you today is that in some way you would say, yes, Lord. That's it. Close in prayer. Heavenly Father, May we put you back in your rightful place. For Lord, you are king of creation and you are king of our lives. May you be glorified in us. 
May you not be resisted and ripped off by us. And may we be shining examples of what you built and bring you glory. We submit to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.